The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like for you to open your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. Tonight, of course, we are gathered for our quarterly observance of the Lord's Supper. I know that many of you uh, anxiously await this upon the quarter, that you love to do this, and you're happy when the supper comes around each time. And that's as it should be, because the remembrance of the Lord's death is a vital component that does bind us together in the church. It is His death and His resurrection that gives us the reason to serve him. Without that, we don't have reason to serve him. Or I should say that his death gives meaning to our service to Christ. Perhaps that statement doesn't make sense to you, and so I'll say that in another way, that God created the world, and by virtue of his authority as the creator, we are to serve him. Everyone in the world is required to serve him as the creator. And there's not a, not a person anywhere in the world that can escape that obligation. However, service to God is not meaningful to us if we don't have any relationship with the God who created us. Now, it's not meaningful if in the end that all that we receive from our efforts of serving him is hell or the mitigation of some of the suffering of hell, depending upon the level of service that we give him. But still, the ultimate destiny for everyone would be hell. And I just might point this out because of our belief that God has elected people to salvation before the foundation of the world, that there is an accusation made that we believe that God has predestined the rest of people, the rest of the people, to go to hell. But there isn't any logical connection between those two things because God did not have to elect anyone to go to hell. People are already on their way to hell because they're sinners who have willfully rejected the goodness and the grace of God. People are sinners by nature, by, by birth, by practice. And all of us are in that condition as Ephesians 2 verse number 1 says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, Wherein in time past he walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath even as others. That tells us that God did not need to make a negative act of or decree of reprobation alongside of the positive decree of election because all people are on their way to hell and they're justly deserving of it. But nevertheless, excluding this election of God, all of us are born sinners. We don't have a means of relationship with God and we have no other destiny but the fires of hell. And therefore, to serve God without that relationship has no benefit to it other than to lessen to some degree the intensity of eternal punishment. Now, the uniqueness of Christianity is found in its most critical doctrine, and that is the doctrine of the atonement. 
Now often you've heard me say that justification is the cardinal doctrine of Christianity, but it's only that way because of the relationship that justification has to the atonement. Justification is the legal side of our relationship with God, and it's based upon the satisfaction of the law that was made in the atonement. Only Christianity has a vicarious atonement for sin that satisfies God to the extent that we are fully reconciled to Him by the cancellation of the obligation of punishment that's due to His law because of our sin. Now, in all those statements that I've made, there's deep doctrinal truths in these, which I hope that over a series of messages we'll explore on these Lord's Supper Sunday evenings. And since the Lord's Supper only occurs once each quarter, it's going to take a while to get through the series. Now, three weeks ago, I, I began to think about what I would, would preach on this evening. Uh, I tried to bring something that's in keeping with the subject of the Lord's Supper, and so often that will leave me thinking a lot, deep in thought, grasping for what I should preach. Uh, you've heard many, many messages on the Lord's Supper, and really, when it comes down to it, all of them are just are usually repetitions of the same theme. So it occurred to me that a deeper study of the atonement would be appropriate for us. And if I do it over several months, then I don't have to immerse you into a doctrine that taxes your thinking and you can't figure it out. So this will give you time to think about things that are said. Uh, over time and then if you have questions about it then you can just ask and we're happy to discuss that the atonement is a subject that's often mentioned in the messages I, I don't always use that term but the concept of atonement is behind many of the doctrines that we teach but the mentions that we have of it are many times just cursory glances at the doctrine so we don't really get down deep into it so what I've decided that we would do is to speak more particularly over the course of several messages that are given each quarter. So that tells you that tonight's message is not going to be finished. This is just a part of it. I'm going to introduce our topic tonight, and then when it comes time to stop, I will stop, and we'll take it up again at the next Lord's Supper evening, which will be in the first part of January. Now, I'd like for you to look then at our text in the Gospel of John. And John chapter 3 begins with Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus, who was an influential Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews. That means that he was a member of the council of 71 rulers that is known as the Sanhedrin. And I think that there are many people who forget that this is actually an extended conversation. Most of the time, we may read down through verse number 7, where Jesus said, you must be born again. And then we stop there, and we don't develop the statement that Jesus makes about how that we're born again. And what I mean to say about this is that we tend to pick this up at about verse number 14, and we go down to about verse number 18 without keeping all of this connected. And we love that part that comes in between 14 and 18, verse number 16, which is John 3, 16, and uh, the teaching of, of what Christ did for us. And we pull that out of the context of the conversation. For example... The method of the new birth is, is affected in the person in verse number 8, which is the term, in, the, in terms we call that the effectual call of the Holy Spirit. The new birth happens beneath our consciousness. That's what verse number 8 tells us. The Holy Spirit regenerates. That brings us to, uh, brings the person to spiritual life so that he may repent and believe. That's the quickening that we just read about in 
Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 1. And so without John 3, 8, then nothing that happens in John 3, 16 would be of any benefit to us. And yet, that part of the doctrine is often overlooked. It's even denied, at least the way that Jesus states it in the verse. And so one of the most important sections of the Bible is taught over and over and over again, but it's taught without connecting all of the important parts that are in the chapter. And so this is a passage that must be kept together. It's all complementary, and without the continuity of it, we cannot understand John 3.16 correctly. Now, verse 16 refers to the atonement or the effect of the atonement in relation to those who believe in Jesus Christ. And the big mistake about interpreting John 3.16 is to devalue the gift that God gave. Preachers think that they're exalting the love of God by preaching an indefinite atonement when in fact they disparage the supreme effectiveness of Christ's sacrifice. And that's a statement that will be explored in a later message. So the passage does need to be kept together to bring out all of the doctrine that it contains. And so rather than to begin with our text that I'm going to concentrate mostly on tonight, verses 14 through 18, or a part of that, uh, I think that what we really need to do is just go back and read the whole story in its context. So we'll start at verse number 1, and we'll read down to verse number 21. Now you're going to be sitting there for a while, so let's just stand up as we read God's Word tonight. John chapter 3 and verse number 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, He cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness." If I have told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. 
And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For every one that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be manifest, that they are wrought in God. You may be seated. I just want you to notice that verse number 18 tells us why God does not have to predestine anyone to hell. Now, although that is true, that God does not predestine people to hell, that's not a doctrine that anyone should take comfort in because you haven't really helped yourself all that much. And why is that true? Well, it's because here it says that he that does not believe is condemned already, that Christ did not come into the world to condemn the world. He didn't have to because it was already condemned. And so God did not have to actively predestine anyone to hell. But our subject tonight is not that particular part. It is the atonement of Christ and the supper's picture of the atonement. Now, the supper that we observe this evening is a remembrance of the satisfaction of Christ. Let's remember that. The satisfaction of Christ. It's remembrance of the satisfaction of Christ and the vicarious atonement. And perhaps maybe I should help you a little bit with some terms. Uh, vicarious means suffering done as a substitution in the place of another. Now, if I use some terms that you don't understand, you can just write them down and ask them about me. Ask about it later. Uh, sometimes I forget that you might not be familiar with theological terms. I find it difficult to preach without them. And so it's good for you to know them because if you're going to do some serious Bible study, uh, you're going to run into the terms. So it's a good idea that you know what they mean. But rather than me stopping every time to define each word, I, I don't know, I might not use any words that you don't understand, but if I do, just write it down and ask me about it later and I'll be happy to explain it to you. But only Christianity, only Christianity has a doctrine of atonement. Only Christianity teaches us the deep intimacy that we can have with God because of a special relationship that's made possible by the atonement. And since it is critical to our unique religion, there is none like it in the world, and since it is critical, we do need to understand what this means. What is the atonement? Now, first tonight, what we're going to talk about, this is our subject this evening, the definition of the atonement. Now, as important as the doctrine is, the word atonement is found only one time in the New Testament text of the King James Version. Now, you might want to mark this down as being the only time that you'll find this in the New Testament of the King James. And this is Romans chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Now, the Greek word that underlies this English word atonement may or may not interest you, I don't know, but that word is katalogy, and the word means reconciliation. You can see this in the, in the verb form, as kataloso in verse number 10, reconciled. And there are several passages in the King James where the translators translated the word as reconcile rather than atonement. Now, for those of you that keep score on such things, 
uh, you'll find that in other versions, such as the ESV and the NASB, that they keep the terms consistent in both of these verses by translating both of them as reconciled and reconciliation. And because of the King James translation of the word, there's a lot of confusion over the proper meaning of it, and that, strictly speaking, that it is not us who receives the atonement, as the verse says there in verse number 11, but rather it is God that receives the atonement. Now, the effect of the atonement, though, is reconciliation with God. Now, reconciliation means that there are two parties that are at odds with one another, and so they are brought together, and then in that sense, we can say that both us and God have received the atonement. That is actually the effect of the atonement, which is reconciliation. Now, I point that out to show you that the idea of atonement is not obscure in the Scripture, because you don't see the word atonement often as you, just this one time here in Romans chapter, uh, Romans chapter 5, that uh, just because you don't see it anyplace else, when you see the word reconciled, reconciliation, those are terms that lead us to the understanding of the atonement itself. It's not really obscure in the Bible. Now, the doctrine of atonement is actually found throughout the Scriptures because you do find the word many times in the Old Testament. Sixty-nine times it's used in the Old Testament, and there the meaning is to cover. It means to take away, to placate, or to expiate, meaning taking away of sins by placating or satisfying God. So that is atonement. You want a very simple definition of atonement? It's much more complicated than this, but in the simplest of terms, the atonement means the satisfaction of God. That God is satisfied what Christ did, with what he did. Now, the term atonement, then, in theological discussions, relates to the effect of Christ's death, or what is it that Christ's death accomplished? And both effects of this are noted, that both us and God are reconciled, and also that God is satisfied by, with, by what Christ did on the cross. Now, you might want to just make a mental note of this for further discussion a little bit later on, that either God is satisfied or he is not. Either the effect of Christ's death is to reconcile us to him or it is not. You can't have potential reconciliation or potential satisfaction by an act that's already taken place. So either it did what it was intended to do or it did not. The result of the atonement is that all for whom it was done are reconciled. All that are affected by it are reconciled to God by having their sins put upon Jesus Christ. Now God was satisfied for sin because of that death. There are many aspects of the atonement that we can argue and theologians do. But this seems to be the one that we concentrate on the most and that is whether the atonement of Christ was absolutely effective. Did it accomplish what it was designed to do? Is God reconciled for all whom the atonement was made? Or is the atonement largely a failure that it was made for those who don't receive any benefit from it at all? So did the atonement make us savable by giving us the possibility of salvation? Or does it infallibly secure our salvation? Those are questions that you want to hold on to to ponder for further discussion. Now, I really do want you to think about questions such as that. This is what Nicodemus was doing in John chapter 3, asking Jesus questions. 
And if you wonder, what would Jesus say to Nicodemus if he asked these very same questions that I've just asked? Will the atonement be effective? What if Nicodemus had said that? Will the atonement actually save? Will the atonement be effective for those that are included in it infallibly that they will go to heaven? What do you think Jesus would say? I think you study that, you're not going to have a hard time figuring out what Jesus would say. Now I want you to notice particularly a word in verse number 14. It says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, I want you to underline that word must. You might want to circle it. Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That's a word that threw the Jews off. When they argued with themselves about whether Jesus could actually be the Messiah, Then they wondered, how is he going to establish his kingdom immediately as they expected him to do if Jesus must be lifted up on a cross as Moses lifted up the serpent on a pole? Same word threw Peter off. Even after Peter had spent nearly three years with Jesus, learning from him, he was thrown off by what Jesus said. Now this is what the Bible tells us after Peter's confession in Matthew chapter 16, how Jesus went on teaching them. It says in Matthew 16, verse 21, from that time forth, now this is right after Peter's confession, when he said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Then it goes on, from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised again the third day. Now we're going to examine that just a little bit about why Jesus must do this. He said, I must go to Jerusalem and be killed and raised from the dead. Now to that statement, Peter said in verse number 22, then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. To which Jesus replied to him, get thee behind me, Satan, For thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Peter, as usual in this part of his life, didn't know what he was saying. At least at this stage, he was prone to open up his mouth and say things that were directly against the will of God. That is not a good place for a preacher to be. So Peter thought that he was being magnanimous towards Christ and his devotion to him by saying to Christ, well, this can never be. Uh, This will never be. Uh, Intimating that if it should come to that place, that Peter would do everything that he could to prevent it. And he did. At the garden, before the crucifixion, he drew out his sword and he cut off a man's ear, protecting Jesus from being arrested. Peter thought he was being magnanimous in that devotion to Christ. It's really sad that there are many Baptists who preach on the atonement with hopes of fixing the teachings of Jesus and the apostles. They think that they can make the Lord himself more magnanimous towards lost sinners by changing the extent of the atonement. And they don't understand that they kill Christ in another way because they kill the certainty of the infallible intended purpose of his death. Well, as we know, Peter became a great theologian after this. He would never have questioned the Lord and what he said in the way that he did here. And we're still waiting on many preachers of the gospel to reach that next level that Peter reached in understanding the Word of God. 
So Peter did become a great theologian, but he wasn't one here as we read in Matthew chapter 16. And because he wasn't a great theologian, the Jews mocked these uneducated Galileans and they called them unlearned and ignorant men. We see this in Acts 4 verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. They were unlearned and ignorant because they hadn't attended the rabbinical schools. And here they are pretending that they're going to teach these erudite rulers of the Jews, the leaders, teach them about the one true God. And so we wonder, what what might they have missed by not going to school? Well, a broad knowledge of the Scripture would bring bring to their minds Isaiah chapter 53, especially verse number 10. It should have, but even the scribes and the Pharisees didn't interpret this correctly. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. That is what would be done to the Messiah. And that's because it is God's way of reconciling man. So the death of, uh, of the Son, of God's own Son, seems to many people to be unnecessarily harsh. And yet this verse says that God was pleased to bruise the Son. And then he says only by doing that would the work prosper, the Father's work prosper in his hand. Now most, most religions, sometimes even aberrant views of Christianity, exclude a vicarious atonement because their view of God says that God cannot be a loving God if he does this to his own son. If God would do such a despicable thing to his son, then he can't be a loving God. And really, you can't fault natural thinking on this. And this is exactly why we need the Bible to explain it. This is why we need John 3.16 to see why this is right. That God had such immense love for the world that he gave his son. And since false religions don't have any idea at all about having a personal relationship with God, they're stuck in this mode that they serve God out of fear of what he might do to them rather than thinking that God could possibly love them. But this is what John 3.16 tells us. That even though God is full of wrath because of sin, the Bible says that he still loves people. He loves mankind. And that love is so great that he was willing to forsake his own son for us. Do we get that? Do we really understand this? He saved us from death, not his own son. That's what Romans says. He spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. And then another part of this they miss is that It's a voluntary sacrifice. Jesus wasn't forced into a sacrifice. The covenant between the Father and the Son was a mutual agreement. Christ willingly submitted himself to the Father. He wasn't forced into submission. The must that we find in John 3.14 is not because he's forced to do this. No, the Bible says, Jesus said that he and the Father are one. There isn't any disagreement between them. John ten seventeen and 18, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down to myself. I have power to lay it down, I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. 
Now the act of atonement perfectly securing the forgiveness of sin that we might be reconciled to God seals the biblical statement that God is love. 1 John chapter 4. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. And of course, John 3.16. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So the atonement, then, is the revelation of God's love. And Christ's death becomes meaningful to us because this is what puts us into relationship with God so that serving Him actually means something. We return love to Him by serving Him because He first loved us. We have received the benefit of the atonement what Christ did for us, and we serve Him not because, as the heathen does, we're afraid what God is going to do to us. No, we serve Him because we know what He's done for us and what He will do for us. Now, I want us to consider for just a moment, is there another way that God could have reconciled the world? Now, if we have objections to this, that, that it makes God a tyrant, that somehow God is unjust towards his own son, that he's cruel, then we might want to consider, is there another way that God could have done it? Now, this is one of those questions that has a yes and no answer, kind that we like to answer, because we're going to be right either way that we go. Or so it seems, but maybe not really. Could God have reconciled the world in another way? Well, in one way, we can say yes, because he's the infinite God. He's infinite in wisdom, and he's infinite in power. He could have made another way for this to be done, because the whole idea of atonement is his. We wouldn't even know anything about it, unless unless God had shown it to us, shown us a plan that he has in his word. And so if we said, well, God has no other options, it has to be this way, then we would be going beyond the scriptures. But at the same time, we have to know that the death of Christ was the best way. It must be the way that glorifies God. God the most because God is always superlative in his glory and if his purpose in creation was to obtain a people for his name then God would choose the best means that would bring him the most glory to accomplish that now I hope you understand the implications of this that the best of all possible paths is the path that God chooses and by virtue of the fact that God chooses it it is the best now in that sense we can say then there is no other plan that God could have chosen. And we know for sure that once this was decided, that there is no other way to go. There isn't a substitute that can be put in its place. Now, when Christ came to the earth, it was for this singular purpose to make atonement by going to the cross, and there was no way that Christ was going to try and wiggle out of it. Now, I know there are many people that preach on the passage about Jesus being in the garden and praying about God's will be done and and to remove the cup from him and so forth. And they say, well, what Jesus was doing there was trying to get out of the cross. Is there some other way that this can be done? No, no, no. Jesus never tried to get out of the cross. He knew this is what he came in the world to do. And so it wasn't like this, that, that 
Christ had, Jesus had afterthoughts about it because talking about it in eternity past and figuring the plan out, oh, that's all good then. But then when it actually starts to happen and they start to beat him and they start to drive nails and nails into his hand, then now he says, maybe it's not such a good plan after all. Maybe we should have thought this through a little bit more. Why did Christ submit to the death of the cross? Well, it's not because the nature of God compelled him to do it. It's not because this particular plan must be fulfilled as an uncontrolled fate. Because of who he is as God, this is the way that it has to be done. And so, therefore, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross is uncontrolled. No, Christ went there because it was a free decision. There was an agreement between the Father and the Son that if the Father should choose some as his gift to the Son, then he would die to receive them. John 17 tells us this, As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him, and this is life eternal, that they might know thee the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. So what we're looking at here is a two-party transaction. In the covenant of redemption, in the planning stages, if that's the way that you maybe you want to call it that, some other agreement could have been reached. Father and Son are equal in the Trinity. Before the foundation of the world, there was no submission of the Son to the Father. They were equal partners. And so Father and Son came up with a unified plan. And of course, the Holy Spirit is in there too because the plan has to include the entire Trinity. All of them are one. Now, the plan then that the Son would submit, that he would subordinate to the Father in his condescension, is something that is agreed upon between these two parties to this transaction. And the outworking of that is really neat as we read it in Philippians chapter 2, where it says there that Jesus did not think that it was robbery to be equal with God. In other words, what that, that's saying to us is that he didn't consider that that being equal with God was so great a thing to hold on to that he would not submit himself, that this love that he had for his people was not great enough to cause him to give up the equality that he had in the Father, that is, in submitting to him as an equal partner, equal person in the Godhead. That verse is telling us that Jesus didn't look at that, that the love that he had for that, uh, for us overcame any what we might call objections. So Jesus didn't say, no way that I'm doing this because I need to hold on to equality at all cost. And so no, he did submit. He did step down. He became a man and he went to the cross. And then the Holy Spirit would do his part. He would apply the benefits of the atonement by regenerating man and then becoming the abiding presence of Christ in them. How all of that works in an indivisible trinity is beyond my pay grade. And so if you ask me about that, I'll refer you to the next level of security clearance. I can only tell you as much as the Bible has declassified. Somewhere there's a Hillary reference in there, I know. So my point, my point is, there, there's no disagreement. The Father was under no obligation to save anyone God wasn't at fault because man fell into sin. And when, that, when man did, perfect justice required nothing more than this, that all people should die and go to hell. 
And that makes it all the more remarkable that anybody would oppose a, a doctrine of particular redemption or doctrine of election and say that God is not fair because he would choose some and therefore unjust if he doesn't choose all. We would just have to look at it and say, would it be better for God to just leave it all alone and let perfect justice play out to the destruction of all? So we must be thankful for this, that God decided to save some because the destruction of all is the only other choice. So if others are right, God must save all or be unjust. Now, be thankful for this, that perfect justice could have been satisfied in another way. And that is, no atonement. None at all. Everybody dies and goes to hell. Now, to conclude our thoughts on the atonement tonight, the provision of the atonement was made before Adam fell. That's what we're talking about, this eternal covenant that's made in the past. The provision to take care of the problem was made before Adam fell. God wasn't taken by surprise in what Adam did, so he didn't put together a hastily devised plan. So they looked at each other and said, what are we going to do now? Man fell, so what are we going to do? We better figure out some way to fix this thing. No. You can wrestle with the problem of God knowing in advance what Adam would do, but remember, God is God. Of course he knew what Adam would do. Adam broke the law. God knew that he would. He created man, and God could have prevented the fall if he'd wanted to do that. But instead, he put Adam into the garden with a condition. Obey and live or disobey and die. Now, Adam was without sin, and so in that stage of being perfectly innocent, being a perfect man created, he had more intelligence than any person who has ever lived. And somehow in that knowledge, he knew about consequences, even though he had no experiential knowledge of sin. God said something bad's going to happen, that there's one thing that's going to ruin the good thing that you've got going, and that's disobedience. And Adam ate and disobeyed. And thus, there was a penalty of death that was imposed. Adam died spiritually, and in the garden there was no resurrection from it. Why don't people understand that dead means dead? That dead in Ephesians 2 means dead. Who raises himself from the dead? Adam couldn't. And so he needed someone to do this for him. He needed someone to satisfy God for him. Someone had to do something to satisfy justice in order to resurrect Adam from spiritual death. That is the atonement. That's what it does. God is satisfied by the death of Christ so that man can live again. Now, a Christmas Carol by Charles Wesley says it this way, Adam's likeness now efface, stamp thine image in its place, second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. And this is what the atonement does. It reinstates us in the love of God. That may very well answer the question about whether does God love people that are in hell? There are people that have not been reinstated in his love. Ephesians 2, 1 says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin. That is explained to us in John 3, 8, how it happens. That's the quickening. That the light of spiritual life has gone out of man. It happened in the fall. And when you flip the light off, the light goes out. You ever notice that? You flip the switch off, the light goes out. Let me ask you something. If you die when you flip the switch off, what's going to happen? Can you turn the light back on again? 
No, the dead are dead. When a man dies in the dark, he stays in the dark. He doesn't have the ability to turn the light back on. That's Adam in the garden. He sinned against God. He has no ability to turn the light back on. This is what Christ came to do. He came to switch the light back on. Now, the effect of the atonement is the atonement upon man. The effect of that upon man is for Jesus to step into that room and turn the lights back on. His death is the reason that God gave permission for the lights to be turned back on. And that's because he was satisfied. He was satisfied that man should come out of the darkness into the light because there's no reason any longer to keep him in the dark. In other words, the power bill has been paid. There's no reason to keep the lights off. And so the power source then says those lights can come back on. Now what we're doing here is just making simple spiritual analogies for very difficult concepts. My point is that there is nothing tonight that stands in the way of being reconciled to God because Christ came to pay the penalty of our sins. And so you see that justification and the atonement work together. This is about satisfying God for the penalty that's imposed because of sin. So the atonement is the way of placating God's wrath. That's what I said in the beginning. Atonement means satisfaction to God, and that's what Christ did in the atonement. Now that's our beginning. That's the beginning primer on the atonement. Now, I hope that difficult concepts are made somewhat easier by what I've said. I hope you can think some of these things out, reason them out, some of the questions that have been asked. And I hope in the coming months to show you much more of the atonement's astounding benefits uh, in the death of Christ. Well, we are ready now to observe the supper. And here we see a visual demonstration of Christ's death for atonement. Now, I'd like for us to have a word of prayer, and then we're going to prepare for the singing of the communion hymn. It is a song of atonement, and so I want you to listen very carefully to the words, a, a good song. I'm thankful that we do have such an instructive song. Its concepts come right out of Scripture. They preach to us the effects of Christ's death, and thus they speak to us of the atonement. Let's pray. Father, we come to you thanking you for what Jesus Christ, in his love, has done for us. We're thankful, Lord, for that covenant of redemption that was made before the world was ever created, a perfect agreement between Father and Son that Jesus would come into the world to give his life for our sins. We're thankful, Lord, that as a voluntary sacrifice, that we don't have to point back to Christ and say he was made to do this, he was forced to do this. This is not something that he was forced to, and it's not something that we made up in our own minds of why it should be done. And the reasons for this lie outside of any ability that we have to understand why it could be done other than this, that you loved us. That's all the Bible tells us about it. You loved us, and this is why it is done. We thank you, Lord, for that sacrifice that's been made. We pray that you would help us as we observe the supper tonight, that we would give the highest regard to the sacrifice that is made. In everything that we do, remember the Lord's death until he comes again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, 
please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.